The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. So, um, praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord. Let's get in. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. If uh, you're not there, we've been walking through uh, this book. I think it's on page 574 in our our blue Bibles there, but uh, we're about done. We have this week in 1 Thess, and then next week, and then we are finished. Uh, But today we find ourselves in verses 12 through 22. And as you're turning there and uh, thinking about this, raise your hand if right now in your life you have a punch list. Anyone have a punch list going on? Some of you are like, what's a punch list? Are we talking about boxing here? No, a punch list is what you put together when you're finishing a project that includes all those details that need to be completed. That's what a punch list is. It's usually long. It's usually uh, bulleted. Sometimes it's very detailed, but it, uh, if you're like building a new home, it might include things like you need to finish all the trim uh, in the master bathroom. You need to paint the, through the touch-ups. You need to put the cabinet hardware on. You need to caulk the bathroom seams or things like that. That's what a punch list is. Uh, and if any of you have built your own home, you know that. But it's not just in building a home. It's also if you buy a house... Uh, then uh, you have it inspected as well. And the inspector goes through and he finds all the little things, the nails that are missing and the cracks that are in foundations and all that. And uh, he, he gives you a whole list that you have to decide whether or not you're going to buy the house. And then if you decide that you do, then your wife will probably add to it all the things that she wants to change in the house too, either before you move in or shortly thereafter. This happened in my own life. We moved into a house back in August, and my wife has added there's some certain walls to paint. There's a wall to knock out under the stairs because she wants to put a reading nook there, kitchen cabinets to paint. She wants to rotate the kitchen island. She wants to put built-ins in the living room, deck improvements, a front sidewalk put in, landscape bricks repaired, uh, replace all the interior door handles. We have a nice uh, uh, assortment of handles in our house of various colors and various styles uh, that the previous owners had. So um, the list is exhausting, isn't it? And expensive, um, as a punch list often is. But maybe you don't have a punch list like that. Maybe it's not in your home. Maybe it's at work, project that you're working on. Maybe you're planning an Easter get-together. You have a spring break trip or some sort of event. There's lots of details to take care of before the project is finished. And such is the case with our passage this morning. Paul is closing out this letter to the church of to Thessalonica. He's finishing this, and he gives a barrage of commands here, as he does in multiple of his letters. If you're familiar with your New Testament, and specifically with the books that Paul wrote, he typically has a section like this in his books, where there is just this rapid-fire uh, uh, commands. Not a whole lot of explanation. It's just do this, do this, don't do this, or love like this, or uh, as you'll see what we have today. And so what he's basically just saying is as he wraps it up, in light of everything that he's just written, the truth that we've seen up until this point, he's saying now live this way. Here are the ongoing responsibilities to take care of. And so our passage here, it, 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 specifically rather, it's in light of this command to be sober or alert or disciplined in how we wait. But here are our orders, this spiritual punch list, if you will, to get our work going. So let's read it here. 
Look there, follow along in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 22. Notice the rapid-fire style as I read. It says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. We'll stop there and take a deep breath after all of those commands. And so, like I said, here is a rapid-fire list of ongoing responsibilities that we as a church have to continue in. And so, it, it fits nicely into kind of four groups, but there are multiple instructions, multiple commands within each of these categories. And so, our ongoing responsibilities as believers, as a church, include first this, to love your leaders. It's the first item on this punch list. In this letter, if you've been reading and following and remembering with us in these uh, few pages or five chapters here, much has been said about the importance of godly leaders and what godly leadership looks like within the church. We've seen the practices and the priorities of the leadership. And so let's just refresh our memories for a minute. Turn back to chapter one here. And let's just kind of walk through it, beginning in chapter 1, verse 2. What are godly leaders? Who are these people? Well, first, leaders are those that are constantly praying, right? Chapter 1, verse 2. First mark, right out of the gate, leadership is a man or a woman who is praying for their people. And then in chapter 2 is really all about leadership, we saw this, if you remember, this is what uncommon leadership looks like. It's what leaders worth following look like. And he just goes through it. We, we don't need to read through it all, but he says they're bold with the gospel. They're not af afraid of theological conflict or, or uh, persecution. They're out to please God here, as you see, not man. And therefore, they don't flatter. They're not greedy. They're not deceptive. These are marks of a godly leader. He says they're gentle like a mom a new mom. They're affectionate and sacrificial. They're not demanding nor attention-seeking. He goes on, then he says they're hardworking. They at proclaiming the gospel. They're not burdensome. They're in chapter 2, verse 9 is where we are. Just following along here, he goes on, uh, verse 10 of chapter 2, we are to be full of integrity, men and women of integrity, not, undermined, or not underhanded, not shady. There's no uh, you know, skepticism about their conduct, but they are holy and righteous and blameless. And last, like a dad, he says, they are committed to discipleship. Leaders are committed to investing in others, moving them along in the process of sanctification, seeing that they become saved and then matured and then multiplied in their faith. And through all of this, in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see permeated in all of Paul's leadership and the leadership style that he is commending is love, right? 
Paul's love for the people that is then reciprocated that he finds here in Thessalonica. And so this is a work in progress, right, as God raises up leaders. But the command here, and back to chapter 5, to our passage today, is to love our leaders. You know, on this punch list are these commands to respect, to esteem highly and love those that lead among you. So look at here. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. So here's this, it's a repeated uh, concept now that leaders are those that work hard, those that put in the time throughout the week. But also here, look, who are over you in the Lord, this spiritual oversight. And this is, this is referring to really and, uh, and, uh, another word for elder or pastor is the word overseer who God has, these men that God has raised up to have spiritual oversight over the church and over its people. Right now in our church, that includes myself and Pastor Josh and Trebes from San Antonio, those provisional elders that are walking with us and leading us. And we actually get the benefit. Trebes is coming to preach later this month. He's been eager to, and so I'm going to give him opportunity and, and I'll learn and grow from him as well. But these are our leaders. And so you remember one of our goals for 2018, right? As we, at the beginning of the year, maybe you don't, you're like, what goals? Here's one before you, that we want to have increased leadership through elders and staff. It's one of those things that is high on our priority list. As those two men, Josh and Trebes, they're just provisional. They're helping us uh, get going. But we are on the lookout for those men whom God has called among us that can serve in this capacity, who can lead in this capacity. And it begins with finding those who are called. Flip over just a couple pages, I'm sure, to the next book in your, uh, well, not the next, you have Second Thessalonians, and then First Timothy, but then go to First Timothy chapter 3. Here you'll see this word, overseer, but I want you to see the qualifications or the character here. But what we're on the lookout is for men who fit this. Men, this is, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder or pastor, they're synonymous in the New Testament. They're not different roles or different offices. It's one and the same. So we're looking for these men that match this, who's also character matches this passage in Titus 1, and who have the competence for the responsibilities to shepherd and teach and to lead. And you can find those in 1 Peter 5 and Acts 20, also is another uh, example of those things of what, is the, what does this role entail? What does an overseer do? What does it mean for someone to be over another person in the Lord? Those are the passages. And so we're trying to do that within our church. But as we think about the role of an elder, it's really summed up in four Ds, okay? What is, what is the role? What are the things that they do? The first is doctrine. They're entrusted with teaching the things that the scripture teaches and guarding us from those things that are false or are outside the bounds. Elders or overseers also provide direction for the church, making sure that we stay within our mission and our vision as a body of believers and setting the course for what we will do and what we won't do, staying in line with our purpose to glorify God through 
the fulfillment of the Great Commission, right? So that is what elders are charged to do. They're also charged with discipline for when we get off track and we need to come alongside. And we'll see here in a little bit this admonishment and what that word entails. But the fourth D is also discipleship, those that are charged with the shepherding and the care of God's people. And so that is what an overseer does. That's what leaders in this sense do. So come back to our text now, 1 Thessalonians 5. We're still in chapter 12, and look at this last thing. These leaders that work hard, that provide spiritual oversight, and also admonish you. Uh, to admonish literally means to put sense in. You ever heard that? Maybe, maybe a, 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 your parent or grandparent or a teacher like, I need to knock some sense into that kid, right? Now, this is maybe talking of a different way than your parent or your grandparent or somebody was talking about. But it's literally the word. It's to warn. It's to caution. It's to reprove. And not in a way that is rude or harsh or aggressive, per se, but is gentle and tender with the intent of growing in the Lord. But this is what leaders have to do. We don't always like it, but when we're drifting in one of these categories and what we are believing or the direction or our walk with the Lord, leaders have to at times admonish those. But our flesh bucks against it, right? We don't like it when we are corrected or we are warned. Yet when we're walking in the Spirit, we know that we need this. We know that it honors the Lord when we are corrected, when we are admonished. And so, we can, we can, and we should, as Paul would say here, to love and respect and to esteem very highly in love those leaders that match these qualifications. Now, the world, they, it really celebrates independence, even rebellious actions, doesn't it? We're taught to be skeptical. We're taught to be suspicious of anyone and everyone, but especially those who would govern or lead or protect us. I mean, how many TV shows can you think of right now Maybe you've never thought in this, these terms, but now that I'm telling you, you probably will. But how many TV shows do you watch that where the main character or one of the good guys even is celebrated for how they buck the system or disregard the law or do things their own way? The show 24 and the character Jack Bauer is built on that premise. Like, oh man, I love 24. Well, you can still watch it, but just watch it with some discernment. And so there are TV shows where, where this idea, this mentality to be suspicious or skeptical of those who lead is pervasive in our culture. And so these verses here kind of fly in the face of that. And no doubt there are some leaders, right, who in your work or even in our government or maybe into the church that in a perfect world should not or would or, and would not be in that position. But we can't let that independence that our flesh loves creep into how we love one another, how we love within our church. We want this church to be a place of acceptance and love and as a family, don't we? We do. And in order to achieve and to maintain that, there has to be this commitment and accountability that godly leaders who match the qualifications work to oversee. And so God in his kindness has established these pastors, these elders, these overseers, deacons, these leaders in the church, emphasize their character above all else. And so it honors the Lord. Don't miss this. It honors the Lord when a pastor and the leaders have a deep love for the people, and that is reciprocated. That's a church worth imitating. This is what we are called to do. 
This isn't just unique to First Thessalonians. There's uh, several passages in Hebrews that warn of these things. Look here in Hebrews 13. I've got them on the screen for you. Just commands that come along with this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Remember them. Follow them. Look here at verse 17. He goes on takes it another step. And this is actually... When you're in the position of a a leader, this is actually terrifying. It says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see why why that's terrifying for me? Because one day I'll have to give an account for you. What? Yeah, we're not so independent. One day, the Lord will hold me accountable as a leader and the leaders within our church, whoever God may call as an elder, an overseer, he will call us to an account how we shepherd you. Things that we've taught, how we've loved, how we've uh, lived our own life so that those things can be true, that we can say, imitate us. And that is terrifying for me because I know my own sinfulness. I know the ways in which I don't measure up. But I'm also thankful for the grace of God in doing so. I'm thankful for God's grace to me and to you in doing this, and this is a beautiful thing. I want to tell you a story here from a few years ago when I was an associate pastor and an elder at uh, my former church, and uh, it was actually the senior pastor was preaching on this passage here and talking about it in a way to honor the elders, and it came at a really tender season in uh, my life and in Aaron's life. There was just a lot going on. You ever have those seasons where it seems like from every angle things are bombarding you? And that was the case in my own life. A lot of great ministry, a lot of the great things were happening, but this was towards the end of May, uh, first part of June, and it was right when we were about to leave and go to the training center. We knew that we were planting a church, and so we had just sold our home. God had provided, but we uh, were living in for a few months a 432-square-foot tiny house with two young kids. And so just make that for a few months. And we were super thankful, but we were living in them, it was the end of the year. Things were uh, the end of the school year, you know, so things were wrapping down uh, in, within the church. I just finished preaching through the book of Esther, and so that was a blessing, but it was also just kind of one of those, like, whew, after you get done with a, a, a book like that. It was in the month of May, and so previous to being a pastor, I was a camp director, and uh, the camp that uh, we had founded back in 2008 was going through some leadership transition, and so I had been asked to come and help do some training there. That camp also had started another camp campus out in the Seattle area, and so they were trying to start a summer camp there, and so I was trying to do some coaching of that new director um, uh, through video and all that, and so just demands on my time there. Through Hope Mommies, uh, that was, things were just uh, chugging along there, but some really close friends of ours in San Antonio lost a son at nine days old that was very close and personal uh, to us, and so carrying the weight and walking through them with that. just every phase and every season of my life was just really like, and on top of that, then uh, there was uh, an elderly man in our church, Kerrville, that was, I would consider a good friend, um, who took his own life unexpectedly. And so walking with his widow and their family through that, I was worn out, worn out. I had nothing left to give, so much so that it came to a Sunday where I didn't have anything to do on the Sunday service. 
Like typically, I didn't, wasn't preaching that morning, but I didn't have welcome, announcements, prayer, nothing. And so Aaron and I are like, okay, this is great. It's a break. We're just going to sneak in the back and we'll sit up in the balcony. You know, maybe as some of you guys do, you just come in right before as the service is starting and sit in the back, all that. Just teasing. But, um, but we, we just, all right, we're going to come a little late. We're going to sit back there because we just need to be fed today. Not really realizing what uh, was going to be preached on. So we sat up there and uh, uh, we're just, you know, points just crying. It's just a tender time uh, for both of us. And uh, Chris is preaching through this passage and there was a family that was sitting up, just a regular family in our church. Not in, you know, they, they just came, they had two young girls and uh, mill through the sermon on the little like bulletin thing they had, they pass it back to me. And they, it, was, it was almost like those junior high notes that you get, you know, like, will you go out with me? Circle yes or no. But it was, uh, will you come to lunch with us? You know, circle yes or no. And uh, I passed it back there. And Aaron and I, at the beginning of the service, we had already said, no, we're not, we don't want to go out with anyone. We just need to go home. We just need a break uh, for a day. And, uh, and yet in this, I just realized that the sense that the Lord was caring for us through his people. Here was a, a family that was loving us, and we went after church, and, you know, it wasn't a gourmet meal. It was something simple, but it was in love, and uh, there was a lot of uh, care and respect. They had no idea what was going on, absolutely no idea. We weren't connected. We weren't the best of friends. Obviously, I knew them, been in their home before, all that as a pastor, um, and they just took this passage seriously and cared for us in a very simple way and was God's means to care for us. Why do I share that with you? So you can be like, well, Blair's cool or anything? No. No. Just to show you the power of what we do as a body of believers when these verses are lived out. This isn't an authoritarian uh, uh, command or commands that we're giving. Respect your leaders. Fall in line with what they're saying. It's not the case at all. But there's something beautiful that happens when that is mutual, when those who lead can do so with joy and with love for you that is reciprocated back. Because we're people too, right? We're, we're not uh, exempt from these things. And so just a sweet example of God's people loving their leaders in my life and it's happened in a multitude of ways. But let's hear, let's, we don't want to belabor this point. There's several ways to do this. Look how verse 13 ends. Be at peace among yourselves. You laugh. That's, a, <laughs> that's one of the best ways a body of believers can love their leaders is for the people to be at peace with one another. Quarreling, divisiveness, meddling not only hurts others, but also the leaders who have to negotiate, right? As when your kids fight, parents step in, and it's a headache for the parents. When sheep bite, the shepherds have to wade in and break it up. And so when we are at peace, that is a very practical way of loving not only one another, but also loving the leaders. And so be at peace with one another. Be at peace. Learn how to love one another. How else can you do this? Well, many of you are good at sending me texts, and I know one another, of, uh, uh, of ways that just encouragement uh, through calls, through emails, through texting. Continue to do this with your leaders. Not just me, this isn't, uh, I'm not trying to be self-promoting here, but those that lead, those that work hard, those that follow these things that are over you in the Lord. Many of you in here are on ministry teams, you're in small groups, you have leaders that lead each of those arenas. 
We respect them for the work that they do, what they put in throughout the week to schedule and equip and train you, or do we just balk every time something changes? You know, Believe me, they're not doing it for the pay. They're not doing it for the accolades. They're not doing it for the position. They're doing it because they love the Lord. They're committed to the mission of this church, and they love you. They love you, so let's love one another. Love your leaders. Look where it goes in verse 14. Lots of things going on here. Second, our ongoing responsibilities as a church include care for one another. And so now the relationship between leader and the people goes to one another. The first item uh, on the punch list here was really couched in a, a gentle request. You see verse 12 here as we ask you, but look how verse 14 begins now. If there's a little more pop, right? We urge you, brothers. And then it's followed by these four commands. And as we look at this, notice who is to do these things, right? We urge who? You, brothers, right? This is biblical soul care. These are commands for everyone. Don't miss this. These are things that each of us do, and you'll see the importance of it in just a moment, because these are the reasons why we believe so firmly in small groups and in biblical soul care and what we say mutual ministry, that each of us has a responsibility for everyone. This is another one of those goals that we talked about for 2018, that we would have an increased care through our small groups, and subsequently through what we call biblical soul care. As a practical uh, thing, one of the things you've heard me talk about is we've joined with our other Texas churches to bring on a pastor named Lee Lewis, who you'll get to meet in April. He's going to come and, and preach again, yes, and also then to begin a time of training in leadership in how to mutually care for one another and how we do that as a body of believers in light of these verses. And beyond that, then, the beauty of bringing him on is it also he's uh, helping us to uh, launch freedom groups, which will be uh, small groups for things like addictions and, and whatnot that will begin hopefully next fall. And it'll also give us the ability with having him on as a professional counselor to do intensives when life just requires it. But those things are nipped in the bud and become minimal when we are caring for one another when we are mutually invested in one another's lives. And so verse 14 and 15 and on really teach us how to do this. Look at these four, uh, these three categories rather. As we are walking with someone, we need to discern or assess where they are. And so he gives three categories. He says, we urge you brothers first to, are they idle? Are they idle? And maybe in a different translation, it says unruly or disobedient, or insubordinate. The idea here is, is actually the, the, the phrase comes from extra-biblical Greek, and it, it's, it's, of a, it, it's a military word of when a soldier is out of rank, or not following in line, or not following orders. He is idle, or he is unruly. He is going his own way, and what needs to happen here? We are to admonish that person. We are to put sense and get them moving back on to warn them, saying, no, don't go there. And we have to do that in one another's lives. But it's not always the case. Sometimes it's not just a matter of rebellion or idleness or, or uh, uh, insubordination. It could be that they are faint-hearted. You see that next one? Encourage the faint-hearted. They're, they're sad. They're worn out. They're weary. 
What do they need? They need encouragement. This means to console, to give courage, to put courage into their bones. They might just need a hug. They might just need a quality time. They just need a little encouragement to know that somebody cares. What's the next category here? It's those that are weak. There's debate over this, but it could really be either physical or spiritual. In the physical sense, maybe it's somebody who is elderly, who's feeble, who's walking through a sickness or an illness or just had surgery. They need help. They need service. They need gifts. They need time, people to come alongside them. In the spiritual sense, maybe it's somebody who's, being very, who's very susceptible to sin. For whatever reason, they are tempted. They're in a situation to where they are weak spiritually and giving in to things that they know that they should not. Maybe they're struggling with just the assurance of their salvation. Am I saved? Am I not? What do they need? They need help. They need that friendship, the discipleship, something to, to come along and instruct them in, in the ways of the Lord. They need biblical teaching. They need to know how to practically escape the situation. They need help. And in any of these situations, what is the underlying ethic? What do we need to be with everyone? Say Patient. That's right. We need to be patient. No matter what category, as we care for one another, as we get into the situations with one another, as we mutually minister to one another, again, we need to be patient. But sometimes as we are walking with someone, we can see the way ahead very clearly. It seems that the decision is very simple, and so we get a little testy about it, don't we? We get a little impatient. Maybe that's just me. Maybe it's not you, but we're told here to be patient with everyone, knowing that sanctification is a process. Sometimes decisions are made rapidly, but at other times we need to walk with them patiently as we see God moving and working, as we are helping or encouraging or admonishing as the situation deems. If we can't get too impatient to say, this is just taking too long. But look what else. How else do we care for one another? Are we to repay evil for evil? No, we're not supposed to do that. We know that. We can say that. But the reality is, is that we get offended when we're in relationship, right? This idea, we say, oh, this is great. We're a family. We want to care for one another. We want to be involved in one another's lives. And some of you are like, yeah, I tried that before, and I'm not getting in there. There's a lot of risk that comes when we're involved in other people's lives, isn't there? We can be offended. We can be hurt. Our flesh wants to retaliate in kind, evil for evil, offense for offense, but not for believers. God's spirit lives in us. And so what do we do? We desire one another's good. Even when we're hurt, we, it's then especially that we retaliate with kindness and forgiveness. Look here. But always seek to do good to whom? To one another, which includes, it's the Bible's word for believers, right? We're to seek to do good to believers, but notice where else he goes, and to everyone. That includes everyone. Who do we get to wish evil and harm upon? Who can we retaliate in the flesh towards? No one, even that person. I know someone came to your mind, like, even that person I had to do good? Yeah to one another, believers, and to everyone. Our desire is for their good. And that, beloved, is the message of the gospel, isn't it? That's the message of the gospel, that we who were born as weak enemies, sinful people of God, offended him. 
And yet he sought to do our good. He sent his only son to die on our behalf, doing what we could not do. It's the beauty of the gospel. This is what Christ did on our behalf. Thank God he didn't respond in kind to his children. He is good and he does good and he sent Christ to bear the evil that was due to us, to bear the wrath that we deserved. So we have to embrace Christ you embraced him, lest you bear the wrath that is due to you because of your sin. And that is good news. That's the good news we want to give away to everyone. That is the good news that we are celebrating at Easter. That's the thing that why we make such a big deal out of uh, Resurrection Sunday and the Easter weekend and the events of, of Good Friday, because those, that's where this is on display and where the majority of people in the world will come to church because they just think it's something to do. It's a holiday, so of course we're going to do it, but we hope that you'll be here to celebrate with us. And so you might have seen on your pews this, uh, this morning there that these invites. This is one of our goals also that we have, is to have increased boldness in our witness this year. And so here's one of those ways to equip you to do that, is take these invites. There's a ton of them at the door as well. If you've got family or friends or neighbors to give these to, there's also posters if you want to put those uh, at your place of business or somewhere to invite people to come hear this good news of Jesus Christ. We want to make it available to everyone. We need one another. And God has graciously brought us together for that purpose that we want to grow in holiness, especially when we need it most. And he's using us to do that good in a dark, dying world, all for our glory? No. For whose glory? Christ's glory. That's right. That's right. And this gets harder to do. It's harder to do. But it requires everything that we have, right? It's hard to do these things. Our flesh fights against us, but our ongoing responsibility, we're, we're plugging along here. Don't worry, we're, we're still rolling here. Our ongoing responsibility next is to be all in. Who's familiar with these verses with 16, 17, and 18? I heard these are pretty easy to say, right? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. It speaks to the all-encompassing nature of our faith that can possibly be overwhelming, can it? You read these and you think, wow, I have to be joyful all the time? I, how can I talk to anyone else if I'm praying all the time? Do I have to live in my prayer closet? Do I have to be thankful even for that circumstance? How do I even do that? Well, these commands, again, they speak to a believer who is all in. There is no part-time faith. Rather, faith isn't a department of your life. It is your life. Faith is not just a department that fits over here. Like, it's not something to be balanced with family, work, kids, recreation, and church or faith. It's not like that. Faith permeates everything. It is our entire life that leads us and directs us in how we live in each of those situations. It is everything to us. And so joy and prayer and gratitude, these are fruits of the faith that pervade our entire life. They are fruits of the faith that pervade our entire life. And so verse 18, when it ends saying, this is the will of God for you, we know that the will of God is also our sanctification, but this is what God wants us as, to do as we walk in his spirit, 
as we live out our faith, things like joy come out. Our dependency upon the Lord comes out. Gratitude comes out as we are walking in the Spirit, right? And this is only possible when we are living for the Lord. His Spirit is living in us. This is a part of his moral or his written will that we do these things. Remember here that teaching we had a few weeks ago when we were in chapter four, what the will of God is. We have God's sovereign will, right? That which is over everything. And then we have God's moral will or his written will, those things that we know what to do. His sovereign will is really a mystery to us. We don't know what it is going forward and how the events of, his, or of the future are going to play out for us. We're not, we, we don't know that. That's for the, the Lord, right? The secret things belong to the Lord. But the revealed things, they belong to us, and that's his word. The will of God is the word of God that is teaching us how to live in light of who he is. And so these things are to be characteristic of us, to have joy, to be prayerful, to be thankful all the time as we are walking in the Lord. And so when we're bitter, instead of being joyful, when we're independent, instead of being prayerful, when we are entitled, instead of grateful, we quench the spirit, right? We quench the spirit. That's how this next phrase fits into it. But do not quench the spirit. When we choose not to, see, we're, we're believers, so we're walking in the, in the spirit, right? We have God's spirit, and so as we consciously do that, as the fruit of that is coming out through joy, as we're walking through life, we're in his spirit. But when we choose to walk in our flesh, apart from the Lord, in things like bitterness or independence or entitlement, like here, we are quenching God's spirit. It is not at work in us. This, this idea to quench is like a, it's a fire extinguisher. God is who's, uh, the, by his spirit, who's doing his work of convicting and teaching and leading us. When we decide to go our own way, it's as if we've just taken a fire extinguisher and put out the Holy Spirit's leading in our life. You see that? We're to be all in. We're to be all in with how we live our life and how we walk in the Spirit. And so here's something that is so key in all of this, where, why, where these become not just a list of do's and don'ts, because we can read passages like this, and we can be like, man, we've got a lot of work to do. We're right, and we have, God, we have the rest of our life to work these things out. We're growing in these things. But there's only one enduring motivation to carry these specific commands or any of them out. The only enduring motivation to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful is that Jesus is worthy. And above that, that Jesus is worthy to be sought. That Jesus is worthy. This is the will of God that as we are pursuing the Lord, that's why we do any of these things. Because we want to know Christ. We want to know his goodness. We want to know who he is. And he is so worthy to be sought. Above and beyond all the things that we could pray for, above all uh, things that we could be joyful for, above and beyond all the material things that we can be thankful for, what we have is Christ. We don't just want to know about Christ or work for Christ. We just want Christ. Jesus himself is worthy. And with that on our mind, when that's the pursuit of our heart, that's where these things, like uh, where we grow in these other goals that we have as a church, where we grow as increased in passion in our worship. 
We grow in increased fervency in our prayer because Christ is worthy. Jesus is worthy to be sought. He is worthy to be pursued in our entire life with all that we have, with all that we have. And so with these things in mind here, here's, here's something that I just want to call our church to this week. I want to call us to a week of prayer this week. Every day praying together for specific things. God has done incredible things in the life of our church when we've depended upon prayer, hasn't he? The fact that we're in this building, again, in individual lives with all these things, we depend upon the Lord and he's done great things in us. And as we think through all these responsibilities, all these uh, people to love, all these people to care for, unbelievers to invite, unbelievers that we want to know the good news of Jesus Christ, what else could we do but pray? And so I want us to pray this week as a church. I'll send out daily prayer reminders. If you don't get those, uh, like the weekly redemption reg, make sure you put it on the connection card. We'll get you on the email list so we can be praying specific things together towards the Lord, saying, God, we're all in. We want to see you move. That person that I want to be here on on Easter Sunday, you've got to do it because I'm there not, yeah, you've got to come through. God, this person that I'm caring for, you need to come through. God, this sickness that is, that is, just won't go away. Will you come through? Let's pray this week. Let's commit ourselves to this. And in light of this, I also just want to call us back to these things. You know, we've talked about this is something that we do, but uh, I want to call our ministry teams, our small groups, back to this priority of prayer, where there no work begins before praying together. No work uh, ends. Don't leave before you pray. And small groups, don't begin at any discussion or any time of mutual ministry without praying. And manage your time wisely. Don't go on rabbit trails so you have adequate time at the end to pray for one another. That's everybody's responsibility. But let's call ourselves back to these times of fervent prayer to the Lord where we can live out this pray without ceasing. Can we do that? Can we be a people all in, walking in the Spirit, depending upon Him, praying, joyful, thankful? Can we be a church that does that even this week? Can we, can we come back to this priority in our life? Can we do it? You in? You want to do it? Are you all in? Be all in? Okay, let's do it. And let's use this last, this final item on the punch list as we wrap up here is to use discernment. At first glance, there might be some confusion about these verses here about these commands. What type of prophecy is he talking about? I thought that stuff was just like in the Old Testament or those guys that show up on, you know, TBN that are asking for money and are prophesying through the TV screen and all that. I thought that, what's he talking about here? Don't despise prophecies. Test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain to every form of evil. Well, there might be some confusion here, so let's just uh, explain it. Let me unravel it a little bit. When the Bible talks about prophecy, it talks about it in two categories. There's two aspects to it. There's foretelling, and there's also forthtelling. Foretelling is what, probably what comes to mind when somebody is able to uh, predict or to tell future events. The foretelling. And that does happen in, we've got many books in the Old Testament, those major and minor prophets, a significant portion of our scriptures is written prophecy about things that have happened in Christ's first coming and in those centuries and things yet to be fulfilled. But this idea of foretelling is also very prevalent. 
It's really kind of what happens every Sunday in a, in a sense as God's word is opened. It is forth telling. It is telling the truth of God's word. Those things that we know and it is heralding them in such a way that it urges us or it, uh, uh, it, it makes us apply these things to God's, uh, or from God's word into our life. Spit it out, Blair. But it's authoritative when it's connected to the Bible. Both of those things, whether it's foretelling or forthtelling, find its authority only when it is in line with God's written word. Any time is out of there's strict warnings in the Old Testament uh, that for anyone that would prophesy and it not come true or not be in line with God's word, they were to be put to death. You wouldn't just go and find yourself on TV trying to seek money because there was actually a little bit of uh, uh, accountability that came with it. You, weren't just, you didn't just trifle with that. But this idea of foretelling is really just God's word proclaimed. God's word proclaimed in an urgent and authoritative manner that is tied to here, not anyone else's opinion, but into God's opinion, letting it out of the cage here. And so that is oftentimes what it is used. Prophecy is, can also just be a word for the scriptures in a foretelling way, but it's referring to the Bible. Peter refers to it this way in 2 Peter 1. We don't need to turn there, but I'll just commend it to you to go look at it. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, talks, he's speaking about how we got the Bible and that men didn't speak in their own interpretation, their own, but they were moved by God to speak those, uh, these things that have now become our scriptures, these prophetic utterances. And so the commands here, don't despise them, don't despise, really, the word of God is the practical application here, okay? Don't despise the preaching of God's word and God's word. It's a call to check our heart. Look here back at 1 Thessalonians 5 on their punch list. So what are we to do with prophecy? Well, we're not to reject it. We're not to just immediately just to cast it off, right? We can't, we, we, because we've had many maybe bad examples, because we know of, of things that we see that are, are obviously uh, a farce, we can become jaded. But the warning is not to. We can't see prophecy in that way with a, with a chip on our shoulder, and, and ultimately we can't come to church with a chip on our shoulder. We can't read the Bible with a chip on our shoulder. Rather, we come when we open God's word, when we hear God's word proclaimed, we come expectant. We come ready. We want to hear it, but not just in a way that is just like, oh, whimsical. That's where verse 21 comes in. We are to second test everything. What? All right? Against what? We test it against the rest of Scripture. In Acts 17, those Bereans, those people, they were called noble because they took what was being proclaimed. They didn't just take it, but they examined God's word to see if these things fell in line. That's what it means to test. We hear it, we come expectant and ready, but we also come with discernment. And then third, depending upon the results of the test, how it fits in line with scripture, if it's good, what do we do? We hold fast, we grip it tightly, we then live diligently and we embrace it wholeheartedly. If these things are true about God, then let's live it out in our faith. Not just, okay, yeah, that was good, now on to the next thing. No, we hold fast to it because it is good. We know that it comes from God's word and so we are going to live in light of God's word. But if it's not, then verse 22 comes into play. If it's not good, if it's evil or even has an appearance or a form of evil, what should we do? 
Abstain, reject it, let it go. And this might be because it's false teaching, it's a bad influence, or it's outright evil behavior. And so we're to abstain, we're to reject it, even if it has the form or the appearance or the tradition of evil. And these things are the hardest for us to let go sometimes, right? As we examine God's word, as we look to God's word, sometimes maybe even these things that aren't inherently evil, but because they're a tradition or a form that we've held to for so long, that we want to just, we, we're like, oh, I can't, I've latched onto this, but maybe we've latched on to the wrong thing. We've latched onto the form and we've missed the heart, right? And this gets off, there's all kinds of things here. We've heard teaching on how to dress, you know, or the unbecoming behavior of Christians in certain generations and certain contexts, how to do church and all these things. And it's not that they're necessarily wrong, but it's over time, they become more about the form or the tradition and have thus then uh, crossed the line into being evil because it's taken our focus away from the, that which is truly good and that which is truly of the Lord. And so we need to abstain. We need to put those things away. And this is where discernment comes in and discernment in the spirit, walking in the spirit. You see the theme in all of these commands? You see the theme in all of these commands in this punch list here that's going on, these ongoing responsibilities that we have? If we are walking in the flesh, what's happening? It's bad, right? It's bad. Things are going to go wrong. And discernment used in the flesh has destroyed believers and relationships and churches for centuries. Discernment used in the spirit when we're walking in the spirit trying to decide what is right, what is wrong, staying tethered to God's word, we're going the right way. Things happen. We stay tethered to God's word. We live in a way that honors him. Are we walking in the spirit? Are we living in the flesh? And so we come back to the word in each situation. We weigh its teachings against our beliefs, against maybe long-held traditions, against practices, and then we live accordingly. So how do we do that? Well, first, in light of these things, we check our heart. We check our heart. Are we despising? Are we ready? Are we acceptant? Then we, second, we open our Bibles to weigh the teaching, to weigh the prophecy. We see what it says. And whatever the test comes, then we step out in faith, in obedience, living in light of who God is. We use discernment. There's a lot on that punch list, isn't there? Like, man, we're getting down to lunchtime, right? There's a lot on the punch list. And again, beloved, these are our ongoing responsibilities, those things that we are called to do as we live for the Lord, as we live here in this church. We'll always be growing in these things. We'll always be uh, maturing in these things. Some are easier than others. And it's a process, remember, as we put to death our flesh and we walk in the Spirit. And thank God he has lent us his aid, hasn't he? Thank God he has lent us his aid as we work our way through, as we complete this punch list, and we look forward to that great day that God has for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and pray this simple prayer.